When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everyone, if you like this podcast, go behind the paywall to get privileged access to the smartest minds in finance. Visit realvision.com slash rvpod and use the promo code podcast10. That's podcast10 to get 10% off our essential membership for the first year. Join the Real Vision community and learn how to become a better investor. And now to the top analysis of today's markets. Every investor in the world wants to catch the wave of the next big trade. There's no time machine to go back and buy Amazon in 2013 or Apple in 2009. But what we can do is talk to the world's best traders about their next big buy. Join me, Harry Melandry of MI2 Partners, as we do exactly that on The Next Big Trade. Welcome to The Next Big Trade and thanks for joining us. Um, this week, I'm intrigued to be chatting to Tom Caddick, uh, Managing Director at Ned Group Investments. Uh, Tom has over 20 years investment experience, including several years as head of multi-manager and fund selection at LV Asset Management. And he was the CIO at Santander Asset Management in London. Tom, how's it going? Hey, Harry, good to see you. Good to see you. I understand you've just launched Ned Group's first in-house investment boutique. That'll keep you busy. It's been, yeah, and it's been a big news week for us. Um, just this, this week and last. Um, it's been quite an exciting time. So we've launched our first in-house boutique uh, to complement our existing uh, external partner investment firms that we've, we've worked with for, for some time, really just sort of expanding out our, our product offering. Cool. It sounds like you've been busy recent, but um, I also understand that you're an avid runner. And I think you can tell by looking at me that I am not an avid runner. Um, how avid are we talking? Well, I think you can tell by looking at me that I am not a truly avid runner. Uh, you, just just a, a keen one with the with the knees of a 90-year-old, I think, these days. You don't have that gaunt, like, uh, starving yeah, no, exactly. look. I've eaten. It's okay. Right. Exactly. <laughs> So um, forgive me, but I'm very excited to be discussing your trade because in my humble, um, I think this is the big question that everyone's wrestling with in markets at the moment. Um, so talk me through uh, the investment thesis you wanted to discuss. I think it's an interesting one, commercial property. You know, typically speaking, as you go into a potential cyclical downturn or certainly cyclical weakness or indeed a recessionary environment, you don't want cyclical stocks and, and commercial property, property generally is a sort of is tends to be a cyclical by nature um, and some an area that you would typically want to avoid. However, so much out there now has already, depending on how you access that market, and I'm not talking about accessing it direct uh, investment. I mean, going in via a vehicle, uh, be it through an investment trust, which is really popular here in the UK, um, which has similarities to, um, say, a REIT. It's directly invested in in properties, um, but is then at the mercy of the secondary market. 
where a lot of the bad news is arguably now priced in. Likewise, in areas such as global REITs, um, which I think look really interesting, where again, you've seen sort of relative underperformance in this area in double digit, in some cases sort of 50 plus percent, um, where you've now built in a degree of cushion comfort if you can identify prime good quality assets um, I think it could be a really interesting time of not to be too sort of flippant about it, but buying on the bad news rather than the good. Oh, that's not flippant at all. I'll show you flippant in a little bit, mate. But um, so, how bad is bad in this case? I mean, what kind of discounts are we talking about to NAV? What kind of uh, uh, price reductions have we seen in the underlying asset? So, if we think about um, an area such as you know one of our investments, for example, BCPT, which is the Balanced Commercial Property Trust, which is an investment trust listed on the LSE. You're talking um, a discount to net asset net asset value of about 35%, 30, 35%, um, something on on a position that's got leverage, sort of loan to value of about 20, 25%. Um, it suffered significantly during the COVID period, as you would expect. A lot of these assets sold off heavily, moved to a very wide discount. So some recovery, but has seen some subsequent weakness and some billowing out again of that discount. So you're talking around around 35% discount loan to value, uh, and a loan to value of about 25%. So um, I think this is, for me, this is a fascinating observation you make because it's uh, there's a price discovery problem generally in real estate and in sp sp particularly in CRE uh, commercial real estate. And when I see thirty to fifty percent discounts uh, on investment trusts, I don't think like some people might think investment trusts are retail instruments. I don't really think they are. Or if they if they're retail, they're informed retail. Um, quite often, your retired stockbroker likes to dabble in in investment trusts. So that kind of discount tells me that people want to be out, that they are happy to cross big spreads and big big net asset value discounts to get the the flip out of of that risk. Um, and that makes me think. I wonder uh, if the underlying deterioration is is consistent with that market. Are, are they wrong to sell out so aggressively? Or are we looking at a wider decline in the prop in the commercial markets of that order of magnitude, 35%, 40%? Because of course, if we are, there's going to be collateral damage from that. There's going to be uh, uh, problems in other markets, banking problems, and you know, some some not all securities will be uh, money good. Um, am I wrong to think to think of the glass being half empty like that? I mean, clearly, I'm coming to you with a glass half full. Harry, but I think, I mean, I'd probably challenge your point on not retail investments. Investment trusts are sort of almost the epitome, to my mind, of retail investment, given the, you know, the, the periods that some of these investment trusts, these, these, these investment vehicles go back. You would argue, you know, I think one of the challenges that the investment trust market has had, if we're looking purely investment trusts, has been liquidity. Mm -hmm. um, so they've been comfortably liquid for a small investor 
challenging for a larger investor. And as the market has developed and, and changed over time, where you've had private client or sort of retail-like investment going in en masse for, for private client and retail-type investors, um, that can create some something of a liquidity squeeze at times. Um, I think that there's a general malaise, an understandable one. I mean, let's face it, it is understandable why there was a malaise over the commercial property market. It was just starting to recover post-COVID. It varies profoundly depending on where you are looking geographically and by sector and by quality. Of course it does. But that broader malaise has, has, has sat over the, over the market for some time and caused some of these blowouts in discount. But because of the liquidity on some of these instruments for a larger investor, that can create something more of an extreme in terms of discount to premium uh, periods. I think if you look at something like uh, the REIT market, so the global REIT market, now that's a, that is an interesting area, but so tend to be more liquid. Um, and if you can invest in a way that is far more selective, um, geographically as well as by sector, REITs tend to be more focused, single REITs tend to be more focused on a particular geography or typically a particular sector. If you can be very selective, you can pick up some really, really interesting uh, opportunities. Hey, everyone, we're going to take a quick break right now to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. So I, I totally take your point with regard to the illiquidity of closed-in funds. Uh, there is no other exit of a closed-in fund. You're going to get paid out by the board or you're not getting out. So you've only got selling. Yep. Um, and if the world is, doesn't want to buy, that can create very big discounts. Um, how much does that mean? The, what's the, the price discrepancy between rates and global rates and the closed-end funds? The closed-end funds might be down 35, 35 40%, 50% even. Uh, how much are the rates down in comparison? It'll, it will absolutely vary. It'll vary by sector, by geography. Uh, by quality. Um, but you've seen, I mean, if you think like US office has had a, has had, again, understandable given the backdrop, has had a really savage time uh, and continues to look challenging, clearly. Um, the broader office market globally has its challenges, but there are opportunities out there. But if you're comparing, you know, that against broader equity markets, then there's been a significant downturn that is now already priced in to reach broadly. So one, when I was thinking about this, like writing some notes up before this, it occurred to me that a large part of the problem is simply that policy is very hostile to long duration assets. Um, I was reading a piece this morning that pointed out how, for the most part, cash flows of US CRE. And I gotta say, for you know, warning number one for anyone listening in, uh, nothing we talk about is an investment recommendation. So bear that in mind. Warning number two, I know an awful lot more about US CRE than I do about what's happening in the UK market. Um, so I really don't have a good grasp of of how where the problems are in the US in the UK, but in the US I have been studying. And the, the general sense I get in the US is that for the most part, uh, especially if you ignore office, 
cash flows are generally robust. Um, the problem is that rates are so much higher. So that as refinancings happen, people question whether the refinancing can go through uh, because you're upside down on your financing relative to your cap rate. Um, now, in that sense, CRE is basically the same as long bonds. So if you if you like long duration rates, if you like bonds, then you'll love CRE. And when rates come down, CRE will perform. So yeah. it's basically a, a you know no bad assets, just bad prices argument. Um, and that prompts two observations. One of which is some of this stuff has been financed. So where you're financed, uh, you could be substantially diluted in the refinancing uh, because you know if you're financed via CMBS, who knows if you can even arrange a refinancing. And if you're financed via bank, the bank can require you to put more money up. And that's difficult when you're a trust, whether you're a CMBS, it's even difficult for REITs. So that financing thing is one of the things that's terrifying the market. <clears throat> Um, you know, is that, I should stop talking at this point. Um, what, what do you think about that financing question? Uh, how are we going to refi all the real estate that needs to get refied in the next year? But I, I mean, for sure, that's a, that is a challenge. I think you'll find that the percentage of refinancing within say 2023 is actually really relatively low. In the US market, I think I did have a look at some of the numbers on that. I think the average debt maturity is about six and a half years uh, within CRE, um, which does give you, to a certain extent, that longer dated. I mean, it is absolutely a, a, a longer duration asset anyway, um, by its nature. But in terms of the, the refinancing, I would argue that that is less of a problem. I think it, it does present challenges for new stock coming to market or new players coming to the market, which arguably is, is a positive argument um, for existing quality assets, but you've got a shrinking competitive landscape. Yeah, where the assets are quality. So I may well have, have screwed up my research here. It would certainly not be the first time, right? But the, the impression I got on the refi situation was uh, we maybe we have four to five trillion dollars of outstanding uh, US CRE to re uh, in total that's been financed and that we have over the next 12 to 18 months something like one trillion dollars that will roll. Now um, not all of that you know in different forms because the financing there maybe 30 percent is bank financing maybe a whole block is C uh, CMBS. A fair amount is going to be insurance company financing uh, insurance companies have been incredibly aggressive in originating new assets in the space. So, yeah, yeah. and your, your numbers there, I mean, the numbers I'm referencing there is looking at bank financing. Right. So, so you're absolutely right, which makes up, I don't know what percentage that makes up in terms of the total financing for the CRE market, either in the US or globally, but certainly in the US where you've got your, obviously the major banks, uh, the top 25, um, who have shrunk their books significantly since the sure. GFC. Absolutely. Um, so it's become probably a bit more of a prevalent issue for the what are defined as smaller or regional banks. But then you have your other sources of finance, so the private financing, mezzanine finance, etc., um, of which there might be a shorter duration. 
So my suspicion is that if you leave, it's, it's basic, it's my suspicion, nonsense. Let me be straight here. I'm stealing this from Jeremy Stein. Jeremy Stein in 2013 gave a speech at the Fed. Um, and he was a Fed governor at the time. And he, he, he said uh, monetary policy um, it's, it has serious problems, but it has one big advantage, which is that it gets in all the cracks. Um, and I think the point he was trying to get at when he said that was that uh, if you leave rates low for long enough, people will get acclimated to them and their business models will adjust to low rates and they will do things which only make sense if the future is a low rate future too. Um, and I have a sneaking suspicion that that's the ultimate cause of the issues we have at the moment. Um, where if rates stay where they are, um, this financing problem doesn't go away because a, a whole bunch of real estate was originated, you know, the debt assets on it was originated partly to strip out the equity, by the way, but also partly because, you know, it's originated with rates that are relatively low. Yeah. Um, and so the, the finance, you know, if rates come back down, the problem's gone. If rates stay up here, the longer that they stay up here, the bigger the problem gets in terms of how much is totally and how upside down people are. Um, I saw a, an, an excellent example, and of course, any example can be misleading for all sorts of reasons, um, but it was a 95-unit building uh, in New York City, residential, traded for uh, $69 million in 2014, uh, was valued by a, at $125 million in 2016. They did a refi at that point clever guys <laughs> um and that meant they got 80 something million dollars out um that loan uh, uh failed at the new high evaluation and when they auctioned the building the uh they only got 13 million for it an apartment building in new york um and i think that tells me something quite interesting that it's hard to find hard money right now because rates are high there's a shortage of hard cash out there. So a lot of this is people being forced to disgorge assets. Uh, they just can't get financing. Um, why am I wrong to think that financing is going to be a problem for the real estate market over the next 12 to 18 months? I, I, don't, I don't think the answer to that is that you are fundamentally wrong. Clearly, financing is a challenge. I don't, but I would argue rather than argue i think i would point towards the differences now to the period going into the financial crisis where you saw excesses clear excesses certainly with hindsight um in the real estate market in the residential in particular clearly that was the big problem with the subprime crisis that we saw coming out of the us but we did see it globally we're now seeing debt levels i think the global reit market as a loan to value of around 30%, um, which tells you something about the level of debt and whether that is likely to be an issue. Of course, there will be challenges, localized challenges. I would argue that what you've described there, absolutely, there will be some major challenges, but that also says that there's some real opportunities, doesn't it? Sure. Real opportunities for a strong balance sheet to be able to come in and pick up opportunistically, globally. Uh, clearly what you've described there is residential and it is US. Um, most of our exposures tend to be 
through our own investment, uh, which is our you know the, the global property fund, or indeed the investment trust I described to you before, tend to focus more on one, which is on sort of prime market, typically and diversified, with a UK significant UK bias, and then our global property fund, which is looking at opportunistically at, at global REITs, um, and being able to pick out opportunities as they come, effectively become that sort of distressed buyer, um, rather than you know picking up off the distressed seller. So I don't want to give the impression that I violently disagree with you. Um, I think if you've got where the asset reflects the current uh, sentiment surrounding uh, commercial real estate assets, there's probably too much. You know, it's probably overly discounted. It's just that I suspect a lot of assets are not fully respecting, uh, fully reflecting uh, the overall sentiment. Because, you know, so you discuss some assets you like, but there's there's a world of real estate-related fixed income assets. A huge pool of, has built up over the last 20 years. Um, in the US, we have CMBS, lots, lots and lots of CMBS. And I, you know, obviously, uh, thank you, uh, Real Estate Twitter, for all of the careful briefing on this subject. It, it, let's hope it's unbiased. Um, but uh, I was, Mr. Shlomo Chop, uh, suggests that uh, that actually CMBS problems are surprisingly big and will be surprisingly intractable. Um, and he his suggestion is CMBS works. CMBS debt works in two instances: when you cash out and when everything goes according to plan. Um, I think it's it's a beautiful tweet. I guess. <laughs> if I had a hat on, I'd take it off to Mister Chop, but. Uh, I think he's got this one absolutely nailed on right. It's a very ungainly structure. Um, and this is going to be messy and there's an awful lot of debt. My suspicion, this this debt sits, I think, mo for the most part, with ultimately with pension funds and endowments. So supposing you say we've got a 35% drawdown in the investment trust. That's where the investment trusts are trading uh, into, as a discount to net asset value. So that means that net, net asset value might be down 10% as well. So maybe a 45% to draw down in total from highs. Um, that number might well be about right. It, it might, in which case there's gonna be enormous holes in some pension fund balance sheets, and, you know, their, 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 their asset portfolios in endowment balance sheets. Why wouldn't this turn into one of those nasty, vicious circles where bad debts cause uh, cause write downs, reduce demand for the asset, which causes further write downs, and we we just have a, a vicious circle that takes a while to to kind of settle down. We're going to take another quick break to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Uh, to be fair, I think there's some truth in validity and exactly what you're saying there. And and that could exactly be the case. If you've got assets on your books, which are being priced at, at valuation, you've got no downside already priced in, then yeah, this isn't a great time to be holding commercial property, regardless of how higher quality it is. Um, it's, not a good, it's not a great time. Throw into the fact that you might actually have exposure to uh, direct uh, office, that's looking, you know, particularly challenged, or whether it was sort of, you know, very specific office um, in sort of parts of the US, which do look 
do look challenging, um, then yeah, I agree. I think you could end up with a, a hole on your, in your balance sheet. So which parts of the US do you think look a little ugly, a little challenged at this point? Uh, office, clearly. I mean, I don't think I'm saying anything. I don't think I'm saying anything new there. Um, I think we're seeing less of an issue um, in Europe and the UK specifically, albeit that office is probably an area that you'd want to have less exposure to, given the structural headwinds you've got in a post-COVID environment, which have been spoken about a lot. So there's no point in sort of rehashing that. We are starting to see sort of pre-COVID footfall coming back to central city. Um, but realistically, you know, your total capacity in offices has, has dropped significantly um, or certain usage in a, in a post-COVID environment. So that does throw out all sorts of structural issues. Um, we, I think, you know, we've started to see evidence of something of a paralysis within the residential markets, um, where with higher rates, um, turnover has, has dropped. So rental market has significantly picked up from what, from what I can see. Um, and that's both in Europe and in the US. But you've got to look at it from a, you know, from a country by country perspective, because in some markets, they tend to be more landlord sort of rental market driven. Um, as opposed to markets such as the US, maybe, you know, certainly the UK, which tend to be homeowner driven, where you are starting to see a squeeze on that sort of first time buyer, or certainly on turnover on properties. Um, yeah. So um, definitely challenging where it starts to look sort of slightly more interesting, um, uh, sort of core industrials, prime retail, but apart from that, probably retail is another area to be staying away from. Um, storage, healthcare, looks okay. Student property can be quite an interesting, very small segment of the market, but looks relatively healthy. Um, so first of all, I, I've just been reminded that if viewers have questions, you should feel free to drop them into the chat and then somebody will try and attract my attention waving at me or, or mild electric shocks to my chair or something to, to get me to ask those questions. Um, secondly, uh, so implicitly, there has to be some sort of view. Your view has to be built on some kind of broader macro view about the likely recession risks we're facing and the intensity and, and duration of any of any of the coming recession, or if there is even a recession. Mm -hmm. uh, because obviously, if the Fed rate raises rates some more, you might not necessarily be so bullish. Of, of real estate and also if recession is sufficiently intense uh, that could also put you off real estate as well so what sort of recession risks have you built into that view um so our base case our base case is that we will start we've already seen peaking inflation certainly in the us we're starting to see peak inflation in in uk and europe um and that we will continue to see a slowing but continued upward cycle in terms of in terms of base rates, but that that is slowing, and we will start to see that moderate and move to a more dovish or more accommodative uh, environment from central banks. So, looking towards the end of this year, um, to start to see evidence of that. So clearly, some some continued headwinds, but that's all, a lot of that is already priced in. Sure. 
you know, you just need to look at the yield curve to see that. Absolutely. It, yield curve inversion is telling you that they don't think yeah. the Fed will keep this up. Um, so, you know, I, I, as I was thinking about this this morning, um, I started thinking of the old economic economic rents, the, the economic economist def definition of a rent. It's definitely not exactly a real estate definition of a rent. But there's a connection, isn't there? There's a, a sense in which economic rents uh, are about what a market can bear. Um, and uh, a central London restaurant can support higher rent per square foot than a suburban, you know, a mall shopping outlet. Um, the supply side of it almost never matters until you get to very low rents because generally speaking, constructing new supply doesn't set, the, the flow of new supply doesn't set new prices. It's, it's, it's central London is a restricted supply of it and so. Um, and I was thinking that actually the ability to extract rents from the economy may have declined in a secular way uh, because of big geopolitical shifts. Now I know this, if, bear with me, this sounds absolutely nuts, but I was watching the a Jake Sullivan uh, speech to the Brookings, or I was reading a Jake Sullivan speech to the Brookings in remarks. Um, and he was talking about the reintroduction of industrial policy because of the, the need to onshore things in the US. So you, you probably need a lot more uh, industrial space in the US if you're going to switch to an onshoring market. Um, he was also talking about more inclusive growth. Um, I put this together with another video I watched where some Princeton economists were talking about what happened in Weimar, Germany. Um, during the Weimar, it turns out that real estate was not a good play in the, in I mean, better than bonds for sure. But um, one of the problems of high inflation in Weimar, Germany is it created a political pressure for rent control. So you had rent control happening uh, which just made it impossible to maintain the real estate stock or to make it profitable. Um, is it possible that the world is shifting in terms of the, the rents that our economies can support, given we have these geopolitical or and, and uh, geopolitical objectives? Could that, I mean, yeah, I know it sounds weird when I say it out loud, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it does occur to me that, that something along those lines is going on right now. I mean, are we going to see a return to Weimar Germany? I think unlikely, um, or you'd certainly hope not. And you'd hope that our central banks and treasuries do not just start printing cash. It's a very quick way of, of, of trying to solve a very short term uh, problem and then making it 10 times worse. Um, I mean, clearly there are some macro trends, themes that play out over a long period of time and actually over a relatively short time, you've got things like, you know, the, the retail property sector, which has come under intense pressure. And I think you're absolutely right. Central is one thing. Central, central city prime, you've got a limited, you've got a limited, um, stock availability, tight space, you, you can price accordingly and actually looks relatively 
relatively healthy. But those broader, bigger macro shifts of, let's say, a shift to online life, for example, it's not just it's not about it's not just about Amazon. It's about the sort of the broader shift has seen this sort of broad malaise fall onto sort of the suburban high street shopping centres and 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 shops that does not look reversible. It looks like those areas need to be repurposed and repurposed quickly. Otherwise, you've got the sort of the death of 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 sort of central towns in the outskirts of, of the cities. And that's not a UK thing, it's a global thing. Um, so for sure, you've got some of those impacts. Um, just like you've had, you know, for example, sort of storage units for sort of uh, energy, batteries, etc. That's nothing, we would not have been talking about that five years ago, let alone 10 years ago. And we would not have been talking about the big structural shift towards the need for these, and quite frankly, the sort of rents that you'd be able to generate from those areas. So absolutely, I think big sort of tectonic plate type structural shifts can have a big impact um, over time. Um, I'm not sure about the Weimar Germany piece. Oh, well, I don't think we're going to have hyperinflation. I sort of hope not. Actually, no, I don't. I really I kind of hope we do, actually, now I think about it. I've got plenty of gearing that will fix straight debt, so it would work for me. But I think, you know, it probably isn't the greatest yes. society to I live in. If you're if you're very long on debt, then it's not the worst thing. Yeah, I've termed out my 30-year fixed a while ago. Um, so, but I, I totally take your point on the repurposing of malls. I mean, I, I don't go to a mall very often because shopping just isn't one of the things that uh, I like. And shopping is, a, for me, a form of suffering. Yeah. Um, but I, I do occasionally go with the kids who still love this kind of thing. And uh, it is striking what's in them, the, the lack of foot traffic. I see the car parks are full in the malls I go to, but the actual foot traffic in the mall seem like they're all being repurposed into suburban restaurant chains, as far as I can tell. Um, and the problem with that is who's your anchor tenant? Because the uh, anchor, when you go into the department stores in these malls, they are empty absolutely empty in fact it's hard to find a staff member let alone a customer so uh, i am a little concerned about it. and and it's not all yeah. bad i mean I, I see malls with rock climbing walls and trampoline parks my kids love the trampoline parks but i it's got to be a second best use hasn't it you've got you, what you've just had is a is the, this use only makes sense because its use as retail is no longer economically uh, viable yeah, I mean, no, I agree. I mean, that's that's reduced, that has fundamentally reduced the value of that asset by repurposing it into what is effectively a lifestyle venue, right? Yeah. Um, and you take out those anchor tenants, the large, the large chains, the you know, big high turnover venues, then it becomes just purely lifestyle venue. So. <laughs> What do you think is the biggest threat to this trade? If you, if what are you, if you're as you accumulate the position, what is in the back of your mind that the thing that you worry about? I think very generally, I would say high and persistent inflation, resulting in high and continuing to grow, uh, to to be raised 
uh, interest rates and a recessionary, purely recessionary and drawn out recessionary environment. Add to that, bolt into that, then the quality of your asset. So right. if you have, you know, low quality asset uh, or assets that hasn't been geographically diversified in that environment, then it becomes very, it becomes a stressed, challenged trade. And you, you think we've already reached the point of maximum pain, or is that is it more? Are we? Would you invest all of your money? Is this the entry point, or would you do some of it now and some of it a little later? And because you're expecting the situation to to maybe deteriorate a little before it recovers. Yeah, the latter, the latter for sure. I mean, I think you know when you say maximum pain, clearly inflation rates as quoted are a backward looking mechanism. We all know that, you know, it's telling us what the inflation was, not what it will be. So we've already experienced that pain. Um, and our base case is that we've seen peaking inflation. So we would expect from a backward looking perspective, we would expect to now on a forward looking basis, start to see um, a reduction in, in inflation and central banks to start to moderate, not reduce, but moderate the, the rate of, of controls they're putting in place. Um, but there are clearly some headwinds, clearly. Um, See, some part of me resists this idea. And I think, for one, the, the, the very first thing anyone should take away from this conversation is go case by case on assets. Take a look at the actual asset in question. And, and run your own numbers wherever possible um, to see whether or not you 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 think that you know it's the trade remains robust under a wide range of assumptions, including possible rent reductions, which are relatively unusual, including under financing stresses and so. On. So that's the first thing that occurs to me. And then the second thing that occurs to me is I'm going back quite a long time now, but I actually remember when central London wasn't quite as glossy and sleek as it is today. Um, what can I say? I may be aging myself or dating myself, but um, the 70s, um, lots of things were were not, you know, we, we'd had a longer period of a lack of prosperity and we were recovering from a war um, quite, a, you know, a bit earlier, but it, lots of bits of London, which are now quite glossy and sleek, were not then. Um, these things can be subject to like quite big cycles. And the same is really true of New York City. In fact, New York City experienced a sort of reflexive disaster mm. um, in the late 60s, early 70s, which depopulated large areas. And uh, depopulated is the wrong phrase. They weren't depopulated, but they were de-affluented. So there are bits of New York, I'm told, from friends and gods who lived on Sixth Avenue, uh, where Bed Bath and Beyond is today. Uh, or the old Bed Bath and, Bath and Beyond store, who told me that they would come across dead bodies in, on Sixth Avenue. Um, and some of that would reflect the fact that you get a vicious circle if revenues go down um, and you have a certain amount of flight from city centres, uh, policing budgets can go down as well. Mm -hmm. So I guess I'm a, a, a real Soros acolyte in the sense that I can see that trades often are reflexive that a bad environment can generate a further deterioration, which generates a further bad environment. And I, I just wonder 
I mean, it's not a, a, a logical or rational argument to put against your suggestion. But I wonder what is the scope for this to go bad? How how bad? How wrong can this get? That's a challenging question, Harry. Um, I think again, there's no simple answer. I don't think it's it's easy to say. You know, if you were focused without diversification, if you focused on one area in one segment of the market, then clearly it's challenges. You you could be challenged. You know, like city center retail you're taking a one-way bet there um i would rather be globally diversified to that end um much rather um so it's, so i think it's impossible to say what is your downside without really knowing what what your investment is right you know specifically yeah, what it, every real estate is intrinsically local it's always local. Yeah, and it's very difficult to make these broad, sweeping generalizations. Yeah. Obviously, your downside is one hundred percent of your investment. You know, when you again, not trying to be too flippant about it, but fundamentally, in anyone, particularly if you don't have liquidity. Um. So, if people want to dig into this more or to see more of your thinking at Nedloyd, um. Where should they look? Where where would they go to to kind of keep up to date on 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 your work and what you're up to? I mean, our website. I mean, I mean, we've got you know we we partner up with uh, Resolution Capital, who are uh, Australia based REIT manager um, uh, or REIT investor, I should say, um, and we we capture a lot of their work and their thinking um, on our website. Um, or sort of reach out to the business, but you know, I think you know. Likewise, the way in, we invest, in which we invest on our multi-asset portfolios within the business, you know, we do. I think most people would say that it's a sensible investment to have a long-term position in property. Quite often, not necessarily residential, where that residential, from a private investor's perspective, tends to be one of their biggest exposures and biggest assets. Um, but from a broader sort of mixed commercial property perspective, it can give you some, some uh, I think, interesting characteristics that behave differently to sort of core equity bond mix. Yeah. I, I, this is one that I think is, is really important going forward. And there's a paradoxical issue, you know, surrounding it, which is that I can easily imagine how an investor going into the space who bought well, bought a good discount and a good property could do really well when this thing turns into a, a new GFC <laughs> at the same time, a, a, a new utter uh, disaster for uh, investors generally. Um, and that's because if assets are changing hands at 50 cents in the dollar, that's a huge pile of losses for somebody. If you're the guy buying the asset at 50 cents on the dollar and you've got, you, you come out of it whole, that's great. And if you're the guy who bought an asset that somebody managed to you know, foreclose on and so you lose the underlying asset and you, all you're left with is some empty debt, um, you've got a serious problem. So on the one hand, I'm kind of bearish of these, the collateral damage 
of what's going to happen because of this impairment in value. And on the other hand, I can see that if, you, if you're in the right place at the right time and you know what you're doing, there's un unprecedented opportunity going on here. Which, you know, there's a touch of irony about that, isn't there? But I suppose that irony is always, always there in investment. The bigger the disaster, the bigger the, bigger the opportunity. No, I would agree with that, Harry. I mean, I think it's easy to basket things together, you know, to, to just talk about equities as if every equity investment is the same. And, you know, any, any sensible investor would talk about diversification within, within your equity investments. But fundamentally, one single equity stock is, in many cases, very different to another, or one company or one sector or one industry category will behave differently at different times. Um, uh, so, and, and I don't think it's wildly different for the property market. No, I think you're absolutely right. Tom, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Um, what can I say? I'm going to keep reading around this one because I just think it's so important. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thanks, Harry. Come on. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance.